Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the multi-award winning show for travelers by travelers. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Today, we set foot in Birmingham, Alabama, a place that holds powerful lessons for all of us as we revisit and interpret a dark chapter in America's history with a visit to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute and the 16th Street Baptist Church, where a tragic bombing in 1963 forever changed the course of history in that city and in America. Thanks, dear. Modern skyscrapers, cool neighborhoods like Five Point South, and one-of-a-kind museums such as the Barber Motorsports and Birmingham Civil Rights Institute give Birmingham a newfound stature as a tourist destination. Nicknamed the Magic City for its steel-making prowess and rapid growth, the world now comes to Birmingham, the Pittsburgh of the South, to learn the history of America's civil rights movement. African Americans drew a proverbial line in the sand in Birmingham against racial segregation starting in the 1950s, and their story, struggle, and ultimate success over Jim Crow is on display at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, as teacher and master tour guide Barry McNeely shares. The majority of people who worked in these steel mills were African Americans. But because of segregation, they faced not a glass ceiling, but a steel ceiling. They would work here, but they would never be able to raise themselves to positions of being managers. Across the street from the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is the 16th Street Baptist Church. Here on September 15, 1963, four young African-American girls attending Sunday school were murdered by white segregationists who planted a bomb that shocked the conscience of a city, the nation, and the world. We go inside the church to revisit that day and learn how this church has become a place to unify people the world over. And just by any Sunday when you come here, you can kind of look into the congregation and you can see somebody from, not Birmingham, you know, there. This is, uh, I think, one of the things that I had said that I think primary is that above all, this is still a church. We hope you'll appreciate the powerful and transformative stories from Birmingham civil rights past on today's show. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Nicknamed the Magic City for its steelmaking prowess and rapid growth in the early part of the 20th century, the world now comes to the Pittsburgh of the South to learn the history of America's civil rights movement, just as we did. In the 1950s, African Americans drew a proverbial line in the sand in Birmingham against racial segregation, and their stories, struggles, and ultimate success over it is on display at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. Let's take a tour of the Institute with its youth leadership coordinator, local history teacher, and master tour guide, Barry McNeely. Welcome to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. The Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is dedicated to maintaining the memory and the story of the Civil Rights Movement as it pertains to the city of Birmingham and the state of Alabama. It is also dedicated and committed to providing an ongoing discussion of civil and human rights in the present-day world. As you walk up the stairs towards the rotunda, the idea of the Civil Rights Institute being a memorial 
is highlighted by the idea that on both sides of the staircase, we have planted rosemary. And of course, rosemary is one of those things that is used to induce memory. And so this building is used to maintain and induce memory of things that have taken place here in the past, in the 50s and the 60s in the city of Birmingham, Alabama. When you first enter the Institute, white surrounds you in the rotunda. But soon thereafter, the darkness that shadowed African Americans' daily lives in Birmingham begins to emerge. When visitors arrive at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, they're greeted with the prescient words of Dr. Martin Luther King that he spoke many years ago. But these words have, for a large part, become reality. Dr. King says he likes to believe that the negative extremes of Birmingham's past will resolve into the positive and utopian extreme of her future, that the sins of a dark yesterday will be redeemed in the achievements of a bright tomorrow. That thought is the beginning thought of the visitor as they go through the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. How do we go from the sins of a dark yesterday to today where we are living in what a lot of people term as Dr. Martin Luther King's dream of a colorblind society. Now, as we are here, there are several things for the visitor to enjoy, to take in while they're waiting on their next tour to start. If you'll come right this way, I'll show you one of those things. We stop at the mural from the spring of 1963 when segregation relegated blacks to second-class citizenship and white violence terrorized them. Here what we have is a mural. This mural is called the Spring of 63. This mural was done by an artist by the name of Ronald McDowell. Ronald McDowell is the official artist of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. As you look at this mural that is wall-sized, you see the children, and the children in 1963 were going to be the pivotal force in May when we had the Children's March, and of course on D-Day, when these young children masked themselves to face down the city of Birmingham and its leader in the body of Eugene Theopolis Connor. As you look at these children's faces that McDowell has created, you can see a range of emotions from excitement to anxiety, fear, tension, anger. But the most important one that I like to highlight is the young girl in the front. Her emotion is determination. As we move to the Barriers Gallery, separate but unequal defines how blacks lived in Birmingham and across the South. The Barriers Gallery is the first of the permanent galleries of the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. It is called Barriers because it illustrates the walls that were created in society artificially by segregation ordinances that existed at the turn of last century that really grew to the forefront after the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. The first thing that you see as you enter into the Barriers Gallery is probably one of the most iconic images of segregation, and that would be the separate water fountains marked white and marked colored. When we think of the idea of Plessy versus Ferguson, they're separate but equal. As we look at these two fountains, one of these fountains is a refrigerated, well-maintained water fountain, where the other is a dilapidated sink. There you can clearly see there is separation, but there is no equality. As you step inside of the various gallery, you are confronted with segregation in a myriad fashion. Uh, first of all, on the sign on the wall, 
You see signs that say for white customers. You see signs that say for colored. You see signs that say um, white entrance, colored entrance. These are all symbols of de facto and de jure segregation. However, when we look at these symbols and we talk about de jure, we have to look at some of the actual ordinances. Here on the wall, you can see actual ordinances that people had to obey in Birmingham, Alabama. These ordinances govern many different things. As those pictures reflect the reality of segregation, these laws reflect the legal binding aspect of segregation. For example, Section 597. Section 597 says, it shall be unlawful for a Negro and a white person to play together or in company with each other in any game of cards, dice, dominoes, checkers, baseball, softball, football, basketball, or a similar game. This leads us to the idea that any game would have been prohibited by Birmingham segregation ordinances. That's not the only one. If we look again, we see 369. 369 tells us, it shall be unlawful to conduct a restaurant or other place for the serving of food in the city in which white and colored people are served in the same room, unless such white and colored persons are effectually separated by a solid partition extending from the floor upwards to a distance of seven feet or higher, and unless a separate entrance from the street is provided for each compartment. What we're now faced with is a soda fountain in Birmingham, Alabama. And at this soda fountain, you see a typical scene being displayed. You see a young girl, you see a young boy. They're both here, they're having a malt, things are okay. They are really enjoying their afternoon after school in a place like Birmingham, Alabama. But then we have to consider Section 369. And when we consider 369, to the right of this scene, we look and we see a young African-American girl who is standing outside. And because of the prohibition that 369 places on her, she can't come in. She cannot come and sit at these uh, stools. She cannot come in and order at this counter. She is barred from entering unless, as 369 said, this owner or proprietor would have had a separate entrance from the street for her to walk into. And this is displayed here at the Snow White ice cream shop. Now, as we continue to look around, one of the things we also see is we see the depiction of an iron ore mine. Birmingham exists because of the production of steel. Birmingham, Alabama is one of the only places on the face of the earth where you can find naturally occurring the three major ingredients to the production of steel. And when we look at this iron cart, we know that one of those things had to be iron ore. But Birmingham was also rich in limestone and coal. These are going to be the major things that they're going to need to grow a steel industry. The other major thing they're going to need is labor. And if you move this way, on the wall, next to this iron ore mine, we see a sign that says, no white folks job. 
This sign is telling us that although the majority of workers in Birmingham's burgeoning steel industry, Birmingham's steel industry was so um, very powerful that it caused the city to grow overnight. This is where Birmingham gets its nickname. They said it grew overnight like magic. That's why we're called the Magic City. Some people also call Birmingham the Pittsburgh of the South because of the steel production here. Well, when we consider that steel production and we go back to considering that labor, the majority of people who worked in these steel mills were African Americans. But because of segregation, they faced not a glass ceiling, but a steel ceiling. They would work here, but they would never be able to raise themselves to positions of being managers, foremen, or things of that nature. Those jobs were reserved, like the sign says, no white folks' jobs. Those higher level positions were reserved for white people, whereas black people were relegated to working the most arduous, dangerous jobs that they had. In the area of public education, blacks were truly second class, as the school system saw no need to educate blacks beyond the 10th grade. What we look at now is the effect of segregation on one of the most central things in our society, and that's going to be education. Here we see two different classrooms. The cutout that we see <coughs> displays a number of differences in these classrooms. As we begin to look and observe, we notice that one classroom is a white classroom circa 1953, whereas another classroom is a black classroom circa 1953 as well. But that right there probably would be the last similarity as we look at these classrooms. Because when we start to look deeper, we see that one classroom has better lighting. One classroom has a projector. One classroom has textbooks and notebooks and implements to learn. Whereas we look over to the other classroom, the black classroom, and we don't see the projector. We don't see the textbooks. We don't see the very good lighting. We don't see the tile floors. We see that there are clearly distinctions being made between education of white students and black students in a place like Birmingham, Alabama. This also illustrates the idea that Birmingham used to have the Birmingham City School System, but within itself it had the Negro City School System. The Negro City School System only went to the 10th grade. African Americans were not expected to go to college. They were not expected to pursue uh, further educational pursuits. So going to the 12th grade was considered to be um, a waste. So eventually, by 1898, the city of Birmingham is going to be asked to create a four-year tax-supported high school for African Americans. That tax-supported high school is going to open, and it's going to be called Negro High School. Two years later, they're going to rename it Birmingham Industrial High School. Birmingham Industrial High School, because it is the only place for African Americans to get a four-year diploma, tax-supported, is eventually going to grow to be very large. 
by 1939, this high school is going to be so large that you would attend here during the morning based upon your last name, or you would come in the afternoon based on your last name. You would graduate in May, or you would graduate in December based upon your last name, because this is the only place where African Americans could get a four-year tech-supported high school education. Otherwise, their family would have to be able to pay for them to go to uh, Tuskegee or to Talladega, one of the African-American colleges within the state of Alabama. As Jim Crow segregation sought to break blacks, the church remained at the center of black life in Birmingham and the center of the movement that would someday change the world. It is in the center of the various gallery because the church at the turn of last century was the center of the community. Well, this church tells us a lot of different stories. First of all, the pews that you see, these pews are taken from the 16th Street Baptist Church. The pulpit that you see and the Bible that you see are taken from the church known as Bethel Baptist. Bethel Baptist Church was the home of Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth. Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth was a civil rights leader here in the city of Birmingham, Alabama. When the Montgomery bus boycott was successful, the state of Alabama decided that the only reason it took place is because people from the outside of the state came here and created tension where no tension really existed. This is known as the concept of outside agitators. Well, these outside agitators were quickly identified as being the NAACP. Well, because of that, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was ordered not to function within the state of Alabama if they refused to turn over their membership roles to the Attorney General. Well, of course, they couldn't do that, so the NAACP was banned from Birmingham and the state of Alabama. Well, in that vacuum, there is the Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth, who starts an organization known as the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Now, the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights was made up of churches, 60 churches in all. If you look at the wall behind me, what you see as we stand inside of this church, if you see the facades of the 60 different churches that lined up along with Fred Shuttlesworth and Bethel Baptist Church. Now, we should mention that 60 churches is an impressive number, but in the city of Birmingham at the time, there were 700 churches. So this was not a popular idea. This was not an overwhelming idea, but this was an idea just the same. After the break, more from our tour from the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute, where we'll learn of the strategic alliance between Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth and Dr. Martin Luther King that would put Birmingham at the center of the civil rights struggle. Fred Shuttlesworth and Dr. Martin Luther King agreed to join forces of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. On the wall, we see images of Bull Connor. We see images of Albert Boutwell, two staunch segregationists leading the city of Birmingham. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Timothy Kendrick. I'm Grace Kendrick. And we love World Footprints Radio. 
and I'm a transplant from Michigan here in Vancouver and loving it. We love the radio. Thank you. Hi, this is Jennifer Coolidge. The American Heart Association says the disco song Stayin' Alive is the near-perfect beat for hands-only CPR. If you see a teen or adult collapse from cardiac arrest, you only need two steps to help save a life. Call 911 and push hard and fast in the center of the chest to the beat of the song Stayin' Alive. Disco is back and it's saving lives. To learn more, go to heart.org slash hands-only CPR. Nationally supported by the WellPoint Foundation. Poaching is a major threat to our country's wildlife. I'm Tom Barry, and I'm an actor reaching out with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, which works with private landowners to protect wildlife, preserve natural habitats, and create permanent sanctuaries. To learn more, call 800-729-SAVE or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Hi, this is your girl Kathy here in Birmingham. Whenever you guys get a chance, for sure, you got to listen to World Footprint. My girl Tanya, my man Ian, listen to them. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. As we head back to the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute with our guide, Barry McNeely, the Institute's Youth Leadership Program Coordinator and local high school history teacher, we'll pick up our tour inside the Institute's Confrontation Gallery, where Voices of Black and White Birminghamians takes us back to the tumultuous times. It is here where we'll gain an appreciation of why Birmingham became ground zero in the civil rights struggle and of the strategic alliance that brought together Reverend Fred Lee Shuttlesworth and Dr. Martin Luther King in their struggle to dismantle segregation in the American South. There are still quite a few raw feelings. Even after Brown versus Board of Education, people are not so certain as to what direction the country's going to take. Some of those people are evidenced here by this display case that has an authentic Ku Klux Klan uniform inside of it. Next to this Ku Klux Klan uniform, we also have a cross that has been burned. We have a shovel that was used to plant this cross. The shovel and the cross are donated to the Civil Rights Institute by the FBI who are investigating a couple coming home to their house, the interracial couple, and when they arrived there, they saw this cross ablaze in their front yard. Now, these words that we hear of uncertainty give away to action. When the Klan felt like they weren't being listened to or they weren't being adhered to, they would go to the next step. And Birmingham gets a cruel nickname, Bombingham. And it becomes Bombingham because there is a reign of terror set off of bombings. Mary Means Monk was just one individual whose home was bombed. There were over 50 unsolved bombings, as we can see by this sign here on the wall. We also see photographs of the damage that some of these bombs caused. One of these places we've already kind of visited, and this is going to be Bethel Baptist Church. Bethel Baptist Church, because of Fred Shuttlesworth's insistent leadership, is going to be bombed not once, not twice, but three times in all. The first time his church is bombed 
is after he announces plans to challenge Birmingham's segregated bus system. His church was bombed on December the 25th, 1956. Here we see bombings in the Smithville community where Mary Means Monk lived. But there are many bombings that are going to be here. As Barry tells the story, Reverend Shuttlesworth and Dr. King made a fateful decision to shift the focus from places like Selma in Montgomery to Birmingham. As you walk forward, I want you to take note that the floor changes. The floor becomes a sidewalk. And it becomes a sidewalk because now you're walking down a street in Montgomery, Alabama. But not only does the floor become a sidewalk, the floor also has an incline. And this slight incline is placed here because of the idea that the movement was an uphill struggle. And they wanted to show that. The first thing we encounter as we step into the movement gallery is the beginning of a very detailed timeline that goes along the wall. This timeline starts in 1954. It goes to 1992. On the top of this timeline, you see ideas that are significant, that are national, that are located, or that are relevant, I should say, to the civil rights movement. On the bottom of the timeline, you see instances and events that are local, but they're relevant to the civil rights movement. Now, as you look at them, the events are presented in photographs and placards. If the placard is white, it means that this is a civil rights activity. If the placard is gray, it means that it is a political activity that has relevance to the civil rights movement. Sadly, if the placard is black, it means that someone lost their lives as a part of that event. Here on this timeline, we see the murder of Emmett Till in 1955. We also see the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott. In Birmingham, we see the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth in 1957 greeting the Reverend Lamar Weaver. And as he greets the Reverend Lamar Weaver, the idea of this white pastor shaking the hand of an African-American pastor has Reverend Lamar Weaver's life put in jeopardy. In fact, the Ku Klux Klan put out a hit on Reverend Weaver for shaking the hand of Fred Shuttlesworth. Lamar Weaver had to be taken to a local African-American funeral home, taken to the back, loaded into a casket, put in a hearse, and driven out of the state of Alabama to save his life. The tour takes us to the Movement Gallery, where we learn of Claudette Colvin and Joanne Robinson, who took their seats on segregated buses before Rosa Parks did. We're still on this street in Montgomery, Alabama, and we see here a large photograph of E.L. Posey's parking lot. We're not talking about the Montgomery bus boycott. E.L. Posey allowed people to come and wait on their rides. Uh, in the city of Montgomery, when these women stand up 
for justice, we're going to look and we're going to see that a number of women are going to be involved, more than uh, Rosa Parks. We have to look before Rosa Parks, and we have to look to the first young lady that's going to sit on a bus in Montgomery. Her name is Claudette Colvin. Claudette Colvin is going to be arrested for refusing to give a receipt, but the city's not going to rally around her. Um, then you're going to have Joanne Robinson. She's going to be harassed on the bus. But finally, by the time that Rosa Parks sits on a bus, the city of Montgomery is ready, they're primed, and they want this symbol. And Rosa Parks is going to provide that for them. When she does, Joanne Robinson is going to put out a flyer throughout the city of Montgomery asking African Americans to stay off the buses for one day. They're going to meet that evening, and they're going to vote to extend that boycott from one day to its eventual 381 days. Here on the wall we see Virginia Durr, who is a mentor of Rosa Parks. Virginia Durr and her husband are going to provide uh, financial assistance for her to be trained as a civil rights leader at the Highlander Folk School. Uh, Virginia Durr's husband, uh, Clifford Durr, is also an attorney who's going to provide legal assistance to Rosa Parks during this time period. Uh, Virginia Durr, by the way, is going to be responsible for inviting Eleanor Roosevelt to the state of Alabama. And when Eleanor Roosevelt comes here, she's going to shake Alabama up. One of the things she's going to do is she's going to go to Tuskegee and she's going to demand to have an African-American pilot fly her around to prove African-Americans can actually fly. <laughs> she's going to come to Birmingham and she's going to have a part in a civil rights meeting on race relations. When she comes, Bull Connor is going to have the auditorium segregated and he has Eleanor Roosevelt placed on the white side of the auditorium. Eleanor Roosevelt demands her seat be placed in the middle of the auditorium because she's first lady of all the people. And she defies Bull Connor and Bull Connor backs down. Here we see a full-sized image of Rosa Parks. And we call Rosa Parks the mother of the civil rights movement because of the momentum that the modern civil rights movement gained from her victory with the Montgomery bus boycott. And she's going to be an ideal figure to lead this fight. But this fight is going to introduce us to a young 26-year-old minister by the name of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Those local bus boycotts inspired the Freedom Rides as the movement sought to dismantle discrimination in interstate travel. You're now faced with a large window pane, but this large window pane is cracked. And on the window pane, we see the words, bus ride to freedom. If we look immediately to the left, we see the bus that we're talking about. This bus has been burned out. This bus is from the Freedom Riders. Once again, another organization. We're now joined by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE. And they're going to start the Freedom Rides in Washington, D.C. to try to test the court case, Morgan versus Virginia, that says segregation cannot be done on interstate travel. 
Well, if they make their way to the south and they come to Alabama, this bus is going to go through Anniston. As it goes through Anniston, they're going to stab the tires of this bus. When the bus runs out of air on the tires, it stops. They throw in Molotov cocktails, and they try to hold these people in. Another bus comes to Birmingham, Alabama on May 14, uh, 1963. As they come here to Birmingham, Alabama, they are beaten. Bull Connor has told the Ku Klux Klan that they have 15 minutes to give the Freedom Riders a good old-fashioned Birmingham City welcome. The Birmingham City welcome included brass knuckles, baseball bats, and chains. Here we have a video where James Word is talking about being beaten in Montgomery, Alabama, as the Freedom Riders continue to that location. With so much happening across the South in the early 1960s, Project C, or Confrontation, took flight, taking aim at Public Safety Commissioner Eugene Bull Connor and his forceful efforts to stop the movement. Here we see Birmingham, the world is watching. On this brick wall, we come around and we look at Project C that stood for Confrontation. Fred Shuttlesworth and Dr. Martin Luther King agreed to join forces of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. On the wall, we see images of Bull Connor. We see images of Albert Boutwell, two staunch segregationists leading the city of Birmingham. We see an image, however, in the center of Dr. Martin Luther King giving a rousing speech at the 16th Street Baptist Church. As we move down the wall, we see Dr. King in a different light. We see Dr. King being hung in effigy by the National States Rights Party. Now let's keep in mind, this is the earlier group that we talked about that attacked Nat King Cole. They also were responsible for bombing Fred Shuttlesworth's church on Christmas Day of 56. Now they have Dr. King hung in effigy. Next to this image, we see what was called the Big Three in the Civil Rights Movement. And the Big Three, of course, were Fred Shuttlesworth, Ralph Abernathy, and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Here, they are on the Good Friday March. Now, Dr. King is going to be arrested. We can see here a photo of Dr. King languishing in a Birmingham City jail. Behind us, however, we hear Dr. King's voice reading his response to a letter that has been written telling Dr. King he needs to leave Birmingham. He doesn't actually contribute to what's going on in Birmingham. He's a negative force. Things would be better if Dr. King would just pack up and go back to Atlanta. Dr. King, while still in Birmingham's jail, writes his response to this idea. And his response comes to be known as the letter from Birmingham Jail. And as we hear this uh, letter being read, we also see the actual bars and the jail cell that Dr. King was locked in in 1953 in Birmingham, Alabama. The largest part of Project C would have been D-Day. Here we have images of D-Day. D-Day stood for Demonstration Day. This is the 
day that thousands of young people skipped school. They came down to 16th Street Baptist Church. They came down to St. Paul's Methodist Church. They left those churches, and you can see in this photograph on the wall, they left those churches marching for downtown Birmingham, marching for Kelly Ingram Park, marching for the Jefferson County Courthouse. But you can also see around the overshadowed images of high-powered water loaders. You can see images of the dogs. Nineteen sixty three becomes the most pivotal year in the civil rights movement. Dr. King writes his letter from the Birmingham jail in April, and months later the sixteenth Street Baptist Church is targeted in September of that year, forever changing the movement. During this year, they're going to have the University of Alabama is going to be integrated. They're going to have the mass demonstrations here in Birmingham. They're going to have the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. And I guess the high point of 1963, you're going to have the March on Washington where Dr. Martin Luther King will come here to the And here, as you step out, you see a large cutout a photograph of the March of Washington. It's almost like walking on the mall during this um, triumphant time. You can see an overhead photograph of the Lincoln Memorial, giving you a sense of how many people were there. You can see a different image of a video made of Dr. King as he gives evidence from the Coming up, the 16th Street Baptist Church was the scene of one of the most heart-rending days in America's civil rights movement when four girls were killed when a bomb exploded during Sunday school more than a half century ago. Today, this church continues to serve the community while standing as a place of faith, courage, and healing for the rest of the world. Just by any Sunday when you come here, you can kind of look into the congregation and you can see somebody from, not Birmingham. You know, there, this is, uh, I think, one of the things that I had to say in this, I think, primary is that above all, this is still a church. Next, as World Footprints continues. 
Hi, I'm Tia from Montana, and I love World Footprints Radio. Police in the UK free 19 women who were forced to work as prostitutes. Nigerian officials save more than 100 children from traffickers. And in China, officers rescue 53 baby boys who were due to be sold by a trafficking ring. Human trafficking affects every country in the world. But by joining forces, we can fight this crime. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking, ungift.org. Hi, my name is Vicki Ashford, and I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. Whenever you get a chance, please listen to World Footprints with Tanya and Ian. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Across the street from the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute is the 16th Street Baptist Church. Here, on September 15, 1963, Four young girls attending Sunday school were murdered by white segregationists who planted a bomb that shocked the conscience of a city, the nation, and the world. Barry McNeely takes us inside the 16th Street Baptist Church to revisit that day and learn how this church has become a place to unify a community and people from all over the world. We're now entering the basement area of the 16th Street Baptist Church, formerly known as Everybody's Church. And this place came to be known as Everybody's Church because of the centralized location that it holds, but also because of the size of this facility. When we start looking at this church, um, this church was, this building that we're in right now was completed in 1911 after the original church was um, declared to be out of code. And basically, uh, the original church building, if you go on the Birmingham um, City's website, you can see a picture of that original church. Some said that the church was just too ornate, too well done, and the city leaders did not like the idea of African Americans having such a facility, so they demanded they tear it down. Well, at any rate, this building was completed in 1911. It turned out that in the congregation, they had the only licensed architect, African American, in the state of Alabama. So they asked him, and his name was Wallace Rayfield, to draw up plans that nobody could challenge. And so he draws up these plans, and also, in the congregation, there was a man by the name of T.C. Wyndham, and T.C. Wyndham had his own construction company. And he and Wallace Rayfield are going to team up with a total of $26,000 to build the building that you're in right now. Isn't inflation something? <laughs> well, speaking of this being everybody's church, we have to start here with the idea of the Reverend Dr. William Pettiford. He's not the first pastor of the 16th Street Baptist Church, but he's probably the most impactful pastor that they have. Going back to this idea of everybody's church, because of its location, because of its size, if there was anything very notable going on in the African-American community, it took place here, and everybody could come. For example, if Booker T. Washington came to speak to the African-American community in Birmingham, he would speak here. W.E.B. Du Bois would come to speak to Birmingham. He would come here to speak. 
uh, Miriam Anderson, notable for the concert at the, um, you know, the Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt arranged at the Constitutional Hall. She actually comes here and performs a concert. So this church has a wide-ranging uh, influence in its very early history. And when we start looking at the Pastor William Pettiford, Pastor Pettiford is going to be um, very, very forceful in the community. As we mentioned earlier, African Americans, when they went to school, their education ended with their 10th year of school because African Americans weren't considered to be college material. Well, William Pettiford goes to the Birmingham Board of Education and he appeals to the president of the board to have a four-year tax-supported high school created. Um, what I didn't say earlier is that the president of the board at the time was a former captain in the Confederate Army. His name was Samuel Olin. However, sometimes it's not where you start in life, it's where you wind up. Uh, Samuel Olin approves the construction and support of a four-year tax-supported high school for African Americans. And they started out in a couple of buildings, a couple of houses, and their first teacher and principal was Dr. Arthur Harold Parker. So we should also mention that the first graduation of Negro High School and Industrial High School took place right here in this building. Um, Dr. Pettiford is also going to, uh, we talked about the idea of segregation bringing many needs to the African American community. Uh, we talked about A.G. Gaston creating uh, the Citizens Federal Bank for the black community earlier. However, before Citizens Federal and before A.G. Gaston, there was Dr. William Pettiford. And Dr. William Pettiford is responsible for the first African-American bank that pretty much grows out of the finances of the 16th Street Baptist Church. And that first bank was known as the Alabama Penny Savings Bank. Uh, in its initial inception, it was so successful that other congregations around the state of Alabama asked Dr. Pettiford to help them to create their own black banks in their communities because, of course, the, the bank is a very powerful part of any community. You know, how can you finance business? How can you finance the building of a church? How can you finance the construction of a house? Everyday things that we take for granted. But if you're African-American, you don't have a bank to turn to. Well, so as Pettiford travels through these communities helping to set up banks, he ultimately is going to go to Atlanta, Georgia and be responsible for Atlanta, Georgia's first African-American bank. As we move throughout these pastors, we have to come back to that idea of everybody's church. Well, when the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights was formed in 1956, the 16th Street Baptist Church is not one of those initial churches that joins on. However, with Reverend Beard, and more notably, Reverend Cross, these two individuals are going to pull the 16th Street Baptist Church into the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Now, this is not going to be without a cost. Once this church becomes affiliated with the Civil Rights Movement, now this church becomes a target. This church is going to be constantly threatened. Um, threats of violence, threats of, you know, financial retribution, just threats upon threats. 
and those threats are going to materialize. And when those threats materialize, it's going to wind up in the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. Now, this area here to my left is what was once the women's lounge. This area to my left and to the rear. Well, this is the area where the young girls were when the bomb was planted on the outside of that wall, on the other side of a window. When the bomb goes off, uh, the bomb kills instantly Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robeson, and Cynthia Wesley. It hurts grievously um, Addie Mae Collins' sister, Sarah Collins. Uh, and Sarah Collins was here this Monday uh, as the 16th Street Baptist Church. Every year on September the 15th, 1963, they observed um, what, was what was done here. So she was here this Monday, and she's still with us, and she's still, you know, giving her support and her ideas. And then sometimes she also gives her criticism about how she feels these things are being remembered. But we want that. We want all of that. Given the history here in Birmingham, have there been uh, efforts of reconciliation or apologies from the families and descendants of some of the people who were at the forefront of bringing forth violence. Now, of course, if you're wondering about Bull Connor, he was never apologetic. Uh, he, Voltaire said that if you can lead people to believe in absurdities, you can lead people to commit atrocities. Bull Connor was a true believer. Uh, he never saw that he was wrong. Uh, so there was no apology forthcoming from him. However, when we talk about George Wallace, uh, George Wallace wasn't a true believer. George Wallace, at the start of his political career, he was a populist. He was with the issues of poor people and farmers. Um, in fact, in 1948, when the Democratic National Convention um, breaks apart over the idea of race relations and the idea of a civil rights plank being inserted into the which is kind of funny today with the Democratic Party. But the, it broke up over the idea of including a plank on civil rights. And the Southern Democrats bolted and came here to Birmingham, Alabama. And they formed the Dixiecrat Party, where they nominated Strom Thurmond to be their presidential candidate that year. The interesting thing about that is, of all the Southern delegates that left that convention, only one stayed. That was George Corley Wallace. Um, George Corley Wallace is going to try to raise himself in Alabama politics, and he's going to keep confronting his history as a populist. He's going to keep confronting his history with not leaving the convention in 48, and eventually George Wallace is going to morph inside that his political career is going to be tied to this idea of segregation whether he likes it or not and he's going to buy in whole hog and he's going to start with the segregation yesterday today and tomorrow but after this is all said and done Wallace kind of returns to his roots and he goes to Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and he goes in front of the congregation and he apologizes and more than that he's going to be re-elected governor of the state of Alabama with overwhelming black support the tragic events of Sunday, September 15, 1963, touched the nation and the world. 
Today, people from all over the world make their way to the 16th Street Baptist Church, and in one of the most touching symbols of international unity in the aftermath of the bombing, the people of Wales donated a stained glass window depicting a black Christ that was installed and dedicated in 1965. As you look around, you also see the balcony uh, that allows for the seating capacity here to be so great. While you're looking at that balcony, you see the uh, Wales window that was done by, as they said in the video, the artist John Petz. Uh, he came here of his own volition after the church was bombed. Uh, nobody sent for him. Uh, he just came. And when he came, he donated his services. Well, he offered his services to help restore the stained glass. Stained glass, I really never appreciated the fact that it was an art form before I started to, to do what I do today. I just I went to churches all my life, and that was just a window. But that is an art form, and uh, as a part of that, uh, when he returns home, they take up a donation. Children in Wales uh, put together change and different things of that nature, and they create what's called the Wales window, and we see it there today. And when we look at it, it is very symbolic. What you're looking at is an African-American man who is um, suffering persecution. Um, when you look at him, if you see his hands, you see that one of his hands is pushing outward, and that pushing outward is to reject uh, bigotry, to reject racism, to reject intolerance, to reject hatred, whereas there's another hand that's reaching out in acceptance, forgiveness, and love. Uh, between his two outstretched hands, you see that there's the rainbow. And of course the rainbow, we talked about the butterflies earlier with the uh, McDowell painting. Well, the rainbow, of course, is a symbol uh, of better things to come and also it's a promise that we don't revisit what happened. Um, as we drop down to his torso, you can see that there are bullets that are going through him. They're riddling him. Uh, those bullets represent the level of rancor and violence and intolerance that existed in Birmingham, Alabama during this time period. But I think most importantly of all, if you drop down to the bottom by his feet, you see the uh, excerpts of a biblical verse uh, that says, uh, what you do to the least of these, you do unto me. And I think that's a very powerful rejoinder that that window shares with us. Uh, to the right side, uh, you also see the stained glass window that miraculously, I mean, this is, we have to understand, this is on the very side of the building where the bomb went off. And that window was preserved, even through that bombing, save the face of Christ and a part of his cloak. And people make comments about it. You know, some people say that, you know, it was so awful that the face of God couldn't look at it. Uh, but then I've heard it more positively that said that, the, the bombing was not able to destroy the body of Christ. And I like the, the second one more. But that window um, was repaired. But for the most part, it wasn't damaged, even though it was on the side of the church that was um, bombed. We have to kind of understand that that bombing was so powerful, it knocked out windows from buildings as far as, you know, across the street and down uh, across the street from here as well. Um, five miles away at Vulcan, which sits on top of Red Mountain, 
the people who work there, there's a restaurant at the foot of Vulcan called The Club. The people who worked at The Club testified that the plates shook on the shelves when the bomb went off, and that's over five miles away. So for that window to be intact to that level is nothing short of miraculous. When was the Wales window installed? 65? It took about 14 months to um, get the church repaired and back into working order. And in that time period, uh, they held services uh, down the street at L.R. Hall. And um, when they, they got the church back together, uh, the window wasn't initially there. But this is, they asked, you know, we want to share our feelings, we want to share our support. Um, can we install this window? And the church agreed to let them install it. Has there been any type of, you know, sister city type arrangement, you know, because of the um, the gift from from Wales in Birmingham, the relationship has that fostered throughout the years? None that I'm aware of. Uh, we do have sister cities. I'm thinking of one in Japan, and mm -hmm. but I'm not sure of a, a, a direct relationship between the city and the, the Kingdom of Wales. I, mm -hmm. I, I couldn't say if there exists. Uh, there, there's no continuous relationship between uh, a church in Wales or a uh, city in Wales and, and the church itself or the city of Birmingham. Uh, but we get a lot of visitors from Wales uh -huh. who come and they know about it. So they just specifically come to visit the church and to see the way. You know, um, just released this week, there's an artist from Wales. But you said that. Uh, he visited here. His name is Ken LaFollette, and he's a historical fiction novelist, and he's written um, a book based upon the bombing of the church. And it was kind of powerful. He went up and he took a picture next to the, the window up there, and uh, it moved him to tears. And uh, his book was just released this week. Uh, so, yeah, people from Wales, and just about any Sunday when you come here, you can kind of look into the congregation and you can see somebody from, not Birmingham, you know, there. This is, a, I think, one of the things that I had said as, I think, primary is that above all, this is still a church. Um, there's still baptisms, there's still weddings, there's still funerals, there's still choir practice. It's a church. And uh, on Sunday, far and wide, Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints Radio and taking this important walk through American history. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show or you want to hear our World Footprints Travel Report giving you the day's breaking world travel news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, click on any social media icon to follow us on your favorite social network at World Footprints. And also, you can now hear World Footprints Radio on iHeartRadio. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi guys, my name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. 
Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.